Hi, Jeff here from the University of Kentucky. Ciao, I'm Kristen from the University of Minnesota. Salut, this is Tina from the University of Colorado. And alam, greetings. This is Stuart from the University of Mississippi. Welcome to Pharmacy Fika. A podcast for pharmacy educators by pharmacy educators. Where we discuss teaching and learning, scholarship, and academic life. In Sweden, uh, a fika is a coffee break, but it's much more than that. It's a state of mind and attitude. It's all about slowing down. And finding time for friends and colleagues. While you sip a beverage and enjoy a little something nice to eat. So join us. Welcome back to the FICA. It is another fine day. We're recording this in April, so we're heading into the last few months of the semester, uh, or the last month of the semester for most of us, with graduations coming up shortly. But I know Jeff just returned from the Grand Canyon. He did this awesome trip out there, and I'm wondering if we could start with that, how that went for you. I know it was a big challenge. Yeah, so Stuart, I could do an entire podcast on on that, but let's let's sum it up by saying the Grand Canyon is deep and wide. I ran rim to rim to rim, so ran it, ran back. Took me about eighteen hours. Is about fifty miles and about twenty two thousand feet of elevation change. And about uh, the, the interesting part to me was there were probably sixty to sixty five degrees of temperature change throughout the day, from cold at the rims to hot in the canyon the cold, snow, desert, like it was, uh, it was great. I would do it again now that I'm a couple of weeks removed and I've forgotten how heinous it, those last two or three hours was. So I would do it again. I mean, the one thing that, that really surprised me when we were talking about it, the uh, AACP leadership forum is that you did it alone. And, and, and to me that takes, well, A, some courage, but B, just the mental aspects of doing that alone and not having a, a partner to kind of do it with is really uh, amazing. So hats off to you. Thank you. No partner, no Sherpa. Jeff is just mentally and physically strong. Yeah, absolutely. So we have a special guest today, actually. Adam Persky from the University of North Carolina is here. And uh, the reason why we asked Adam to join us is because he wrote an article with a few of his colleagues, a few of our colleagues, uh, some years ago about critical thinking, which is the topic for today. But before we get there, I wanted to share our snack choices and our beverage choices. Um, based on Kristen's recommendation last time, I upgraded my tea choice to a, a, a uh, I think it's, is it Rubio's tea? That's how you pronounce it? I'm not sure, but a Rubio's tea with some orange. It's called uh, Sweet and Spicy by the Good Earth, and it is very tasty, I have to say. And I got some of these Akai blueberry chocolates with me, a few of those for my snack. So, so Tina, what'd you bring? Um, I'm going full extra spicy ginger tea, two tea bags, because I like it to burn. <laughs> and then I was, depending upon how the conversation goes, how much energy I need, I have my extra healthy cutie, my little uh, mandarin, or a nice dark chocolate if I need the, uh, if I need the extra boost. There you go. Uh, Kristen. Always bring something great. So I'm anxious to hear what you have this time. Well, today I brought Lipton. So I guess you and I have traded roles. Only some Lipton tea. And 
I also have some homemade crackers. Homemade? Homemade. We make these ourselves so I can eat them. They've got almond flour in and rosemary. So yum, yum. There you go. And Adam, what'd you bring? So I went to the dentist this morning. So I got my teeth cleaned and I've been intermittent fasting. So typically I'd be eating right about now, but I have meetings until it's about 3.30 today. So it might be a very long fast and a very heavy dinner. Well, Jeff, of course. Yes, I do have my sparkling water. You can't tell. That's what, that is what's in here. I promise the sparkling water in this blue cup. I was actually going to bring something, but then I was looking at my schedule and I actually had lunch about 45 minutes ago because if I didn't eat it then, it was going to be 3.30 today. So I'm really not hungry for a snack. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. All right. Well, um, so our conversation today is about critical thinking, teaching critical thinking, and I think this is obviously a, a, an important topic for all pharmacy educators to think about, um, and it, it is, a, I think, a skill that we want to instill in students regardless of the content that we teach. But I think I want to start the discussion out by asking a simple question, what exactly is it like you know how would you go about defining what critical thinking is and adam i'd like to start with you because you wrote this i think terrific review on this subject matter and yeah i'd like to hear what your thoughts are how you go about defining it yeah so i mean if there's lots of uh definitions published i mean the american philosophical association has like a paragraph long definition uh for me it's just a matter of making a, a reasoned decision just weighing evidence and, and making a decision based off that. So I think it's, it's fairly simple as far as, for me, what critical thinking is. It's just weighing evidence and making a reasonable choice to, to move forward with and, and test that, that hypothesis out. How about you, Kristen? I'm, I'm sure you've probably thought about this for some time. This was actually the very first topic I ever brought into the classroom when I was a graduate student. I had gotten so excited by some of the literature that I was reading that I just felt compelled to try and describe it for for students. Of course, I don't remember what I said back then. (laughs) And I I do get very caught up in the contrasting models, and I'm hard-pressed to define it, and I think that's one of the difficulties. So uh, I learned from um, one of my colleagues at uh, UCSF, uh, Dr. Catherine Gruenberg, a really nice way to describe it, or at least keep it in my head, which is it's answering questions and questioning answers. So keeping that kind of circle together of, you know, seeking out the information you need, but then evaluating that information um, and using it to drive further decision making. So um, I don't think I have a any better way to define it or describe it than Adam and Tina did. It is one of those constructs, like everyone has alluded to, that there's so many different definitions. The semantics are so different that, you know, in my mind, it's one of those, in my mind, I know what it is, but I have never actually taken the time to put words to it and say, this is what it is. So I I hesitate to do that now because I would probably say words that I would regret later. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things for me, though, is not only taking evidence and evaluating it and making a decision based on testing it, but I also think it's the willingness 
to do that, right? Like to test different ideas um, or different uh, decisions to see how they work out. And I actually think that's one of the, that initiation energy, if you will, is one of the things I find missing sometimes for many students who are not particularly good critical thinkers. It's not that they can't evaluate evidence or make decisions, it's that they just don't, you know, like don't look at what all the possibilities are, consider what the different choices might be and evaluate those. I think they just go with a choice or they don't make a decision at all. I don't know if that's your impression as well. I think it, uh, to me, that's exactly what I was thinking. I think Adam said it in, in his paper, um, in their paper about the students take students and people in general take the easy path to thinking. And so rather than engage in the thinking, it's like, okay, this sounds reasonable. This seems like the right answer. Boom. I'm going with that versus actually going through and analyzing it. But I think, I do think, I mean, Essentially, our brains are hardwired to avoid discomfort. Everyone's, but except for Jeff's, who will go 18 hours you know, across the Grand Canyon. Lots of things reinforce pushing away from discomfort. And, you know, that deep learning it can be a bit uncomfortable. And, you know, questioning and asking why versus solving the dilemma with someone else's solution so the guidelines for example you know that feels pretty comfortable right I don't have to question how deeply I really understand this so I you know I think some of it is normalized through our culture but I, I believe our brains are hardwired that way as well so we have to learn to push back against what may seem natural and I think you know a lot of this is, is contextual you I mean it's if I'm driving to work and I'm in a traffic jam, I need to get somewhere really quickly, then I'll start problem solving of how to best to go there. Well, now Google helps me, so I don't actually need to do it. But, you know, in a classroom setting, you know, it also depends on, you know, what do I know about the situation for me to actually know if I'm right or wrong. You know, if it's inventory care question and Stuart says this is the way it is, I'm like, well, Stuart's the expert, so why should I doubt him? If it's teaching and learning, yeah, I have some context to start critically evaluating statements. So I think that's where, you know, it's, the willingness, but also, do I have the right cues to say, this is where I need to start doing it? Because if I do it all the time, I'll be exhausted and nothing will ever get done. Yeah, okay. So I, I think that's a really great point because I was just reading an article in Academic Medicine about put some pushback on this idea that critical thinking skills are a general skill and that it is much more of a contextual skill than we realize. In other words, you need to have some foundational knowledge in the particular area that you're doing critical thinking because without that, you really don't know what the choices are. You don't know what the outcome is supposed to be. You don't know certain things about the field or the discipline to even engage in some sort of critical thinking cycle. I've grown to believe that it's not a general ability, that it is in fact tied to your fundamental knowledge in a particular field or discipline, and then is an attitudinal thing because you need to have the willingness to engage in critical thinking or critical questioning. I just want to point to the, the evolution in this thinking though, because I think it, it, it has been interesting to watch this over time. It, we used to talk about critical thinking as a general ability, right? And in pharmacy, we even had general ability based outcomes and they were separate from our professional outcomes. I don't know if anyone remembers those besides me. 
but we used to we used to itemize out those things that were non-professional but yet were like important to being a citizen and and important growth opportunities for our students and critical thinking was one of them and it was separate from these professional outcomes and now this this discussion about attitude being a part of it. We never used to talk about that. You know, it was just this cognitive process, you know, these set of skills that we needed to enact in students. We never talked about whether there was a a readiness or a willingness. And I think that evolution is really important. And and I think the literature supports that, that you need to have that general framework of here's the process you go through. Here are these five, six steps, but you need to be in context of what you're doing with. And, you know, we're experts because we know our field really well. I am not, so my ability to solve problems outside of my expertise is really hard. I can go through the process, but my quality of my answer won't be as good because I don't have that background knowledge to say, oh, well, we just proved that 20 years ago, but to me, it makes a lot of sense because, so I think that background knowledge still comes into play. And I think the quality of those answers really depends on that content knowledge. Now, the attitude to engage in that also might also depend on that content knowledge saying, well, I can't question everything. and you know, if, if teachers and instructors are the experts, why would I question them? Why would I question Jeff Kane about education? So it's, I so said, we have, we have a situation of, they're probably challenger peers, maybe, but would they ever challenge us? And I think maybe that, that hierarchy is maybe part of the issues of how we tend to have education. So Tina, you shared that article from Daniel Willingham, which who I like and some other stuff that I've read. And, you know, he made the point in there that critical thinking may be the sort of the same steps, the same process in different fields or disciplines, but we don't apply them and most people can't put them together unless it's activated to say, this is like that problem in X that you solved. And then they can do that. But they're just not linked. So I think there's the there's the big issue if you're trying to teach it as a general concept is are the students being able to then transfer it to different domains and different problem types. You know, we're reading this paper um, from medicinal chemistry about this is where we learn problem solving for pharmacotherapy. Um, and I, I've heard that in other discussions, you know, my course is the course that teaches them how to think like a pharmacist. My course is, and yet I wonder how often we really signpost that to students. I think about a technique that I, um, shamefully borrowed from Jen Danielson at UW about when students said, we don't get any feedback. And she was like, I give you feedback all the time. And then she had this little sign that she would hold up that says, this is feedback. And I wonder if we should be holding up a sign that says, this is critical thinking. It's just wrapped in a wrapper that makes that not so clear to the students. And if we actually said, right now what I'm doing is, you know, going off piste from these guidelines or applying this in a different way and held up maybe a sign that says this is critical thinking um, at play so that they're more aware they're trying to be like us. They're trying to model their decision-making, but we're not necessarily as overt about all the ways that we are using critical thinking. So, so this leads me to a question though. What are those four, five, six steps that you think are critical? I'm going to address this to Adam um, because you're the one who brought it up, but also your article kind of 
talks about procedurally what happens when we're critical thinking. And is that something explicitly we should be teaching our students is the critical thinking process? Because I, I think there's, you know, some merit to not just modeling it, but talking about the techniques of doing it. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, a lot of talk recently about design thinking, and I think there's very similar parallels of one, identify what the problem is. So that's that's the first part. You know, design thinking has a different approach to it, than, but what's the problem? And then it's all the options of what might solve that problem. And I think we tend to skip those things. We're like, oh, here's, here's the best thing, and we don't weigh all the evidence out. So I think slowing down a process and being very intentional about here's all the options weigh them, why are we going to pick one or the other, make that decision, test it out, um, and then if it doesn't work out, to go through the process again, that iterative nature of what we're doing. Again, I think we're so we're so quick to get to the solution. I, I've chaired faculty committees, and they want to go right to what all the problems are with your solution versus like, well, can we get to the solutions first? And then, but I think just being much more intentional about that process of problem, possible solutions, weighing evidence, making decision, testing the decision, and then going feeding back in the system of did it work or not? It's it's basically therapeutic drug monitoring. Yeah, it's really the scientific method too, right? The yeah, right. Yeah. So, are there particular times in the curriculum when we should be teaching it explicitly? And is it every course should think about how they're developing critical thinking skills? And if so, I think. In practice courses, I think it's a little bit easier. We do case studies, and maybe we're not very explicit about the process. We could probably improve about that. But we do a lot of case-based learning in most practice-based courses, and that's a natural place to do some of this critical thinking, weighing options. But I, I'm not sure we're doing that as much in the basic science courses or uh, leadership courses or administrative courses or social science course. I mean, you name what, uh, what other other courses are. Are we doing enough of that critical thinking or building those kind of skills so that students see the process in other contexts and other disciplines as well? Yeah, I would, I would say if I was building a curriculum, I would have a very early course that teaches the process. Here's the steps we go through. And every course will be on the same page. Like, here's the process we're going to use. And they reemphasize that. Now, we call things like the patient pharmacy patient care process is basically critical thinking. But we decided to call it something different. But I think if we all did it and we were explicit about it, kind of Tina's point of like, we're talking about like, here's how you determine if it's the right drug or the right dose. It's easier for them to see those connections. Um, and obviously, as your, as your knowledge grows, your ability to do this grows. By the end of the day, they're still going to be experts in one or two things. So I think they can get better at it. I think just be a much more coordinated effort, like lots of things with the curriculum, uh, requires being on the same page. And using the same language uh, to describe yeah. things. I think that probably helps, yeah. too, learners to sort that out. Well, and I think we can recognize that we may sometimes our scientific language across different fields of science, we're using the same word to describe different things. And sometimes we're using different words to describe the same thing. So I think it's perfectly fine to signpost to students that in chemistry, we call this X and in psychology, we call it Y. But essentially, we're talking about this, a similar process. To me, it strengthens the likelihood that this is the right pathway if multiple, if math and engineering and economics and psychology basically all use a similar process, even if they have 
done my favorite, what we call in pharmacy, you know, put pharmaco in front of it, <laughs> pharmacocritical thinking, you know, that naturally happens in a lot of fields, but really those sort of basic ways of approaching problems or fuzzy areas, I think hold true across the way we um, approach science. I, okay. I'm, I'm going to actually maybe push back a little bit. Please. I think there is a problem solving process that is slightly different. I mean, at a macro level, it's the same, right? You know, the pharmacist patient care process is the same as a physician's care process is the same as the nurse's care process, which is the same as the scientific method. But I think there is some critical differences in the way pharmacists approach problems that is different than other professionals, including physicians, nurses, engineers, and medicinal chemists. And I'm going to actually turn to Kristen to kind of explore this a little bit more because I think Minnesota teaches this, particularly that analysis phase, very specifically. And I think, you know, developing the skills that a pharmacist should have in analyzing problems in in a unique way is what we uniquely bring to the team. Right, right. We uh, we teach IESA or IESC, depending on the acronyms you want to use, but uh, that your approach to the, the drugs in front of you and the drug therapy in front of you is to think first about indication. And only if it's indicated, do we then think about effectiveness. And if it's indicated and effective, then we think about safe, safety. And if it's indicated, effective, safe, then we're also thinking about adherence, the ability of the, the patient to adhere to that, or that that is a convenient um, formulation and, and product for them. So that thought process leads you to the problem, right? If it's not indicated, why are we going any further? Um, you know, and, and so on, you know, like, so it allows you to label the problem, dose too high, dose too low, like all of that comes out of thinking IESA every time we're confronted with drug therapies. Yeah. So I think actually having a more detailed process for people to use and apply to their problems, which is discipline specific, really is helpful. So although criti- critical thinking is a general skill, I think there are discipline specific ways of addressing it and teaching our students those is also, you know, very important. So, and I think like each step in the process probably has its own little algorithm. How do you come up with the initial problems? If you pick pick the wrong problem, then you're gonna have the wrong conclusion. How do you weigh the evidence? What algorithm are you gonna use for that? So I think each system might vary by that. You know, I can walk through kinetics, like how do you know it's clearance or volume? I have an algorithm in my head that I try to show students. So I think, that's where some of the nuances come in um, of how, how do you go through each step in a meaningful way, but the, set, the six steps or five steps, whatever it is, is still kind of the common core. I, I think of that, though, Stuart, as like a wrapping. So there's the core, and that's probably something like the scientific method. And we have to normalize that that can feel uncomfortable in that process, not knowing the answer. It feels great to say is the dose too high yes it is I know I know that fact so well if I'm like well let me let me kind of reason through this then those sort of heuristics and models really let the students um, give them some muscle memory about how to approach it but I don't really think there's much to gain from the various sub-sciences 
that are within pharmacy kind of fighting over I'm the one that teaches it, not not Adam, not not Kristen. You know, it, we all contribute to that. But again, holding up that sign, this is critical thinking, I think makes it more apparent to the learner. Um, I love this article by Kate Smith, which is Wicked Problems in Pharmacy, because these are problems which lots of people have tried to think through and try to come up with solutions for, and yet we don't have good solutions for yet. Uh, because they're just wicked problems. They're really difficult. And I'm wondering if we need to be more explicit of introducing our students to wicked problems. We often provide problems that have solutions. We want our students to come up with an answer that's, well, it's got evidence to support it and so on. But we don't expose our students to the things that we encounter every day, which are the wicked problems, the things that don't have easy solutions. And I'm wondering, is this a good way to develop critical thinking skills? Probably. I mean, the problem, you know, the reason we don't do that is they're hard to grade the student answers, right? If, we, if there's not a correct answer, one correct answer, how do you grade it? Which, you know, gets us back into a whole other topic that we've explored. And we'll, this wicked problems thing, Stuart, takes me back to, and it's a perfect segue. So a question that has been bugging me since the very beginning we started talking today is we generally all agreed that the critical thinking didn't always transfer from one field to another field. Like you, you, you would be able to do it in one area, but couldn't do it in the other. But David Epstein in the book range, which we've talked often about, which he also talks about the wicked problems, you know, makes the point that people who have varied and different experiences are much better at solving the wicked problems than the specialists. And I'm, I've been trying to reconcile that in my mind in between listening to you all and following the conversation. Just what are your all's thoughts about that? I think it goes hand in hand with, you know, having students or having us work in teams. The idea of teams, is, so if the problem can be solved by one person, it's not worth putting people in teams. We do it all the time, right? It's too simple for the group. So what problems does it really require the group? Because I mean, from brainstorming perspective, it's easier for everybody to go their own way, brainstorm, come together, you get more ideas. Unless it's a really complex problem where you need the expertise from other areas to kind of weigh in your ideas. So I think these wicked problems depends on what is, you know, kind of the question of what is the solution that you're looking for. A surgeon can probably figure it out. Yep, I can cut it out. It's fine. The nutritionist might have to say, well, if we prevented it in the first place, it wouldn't be the problem. So I, so I think that's where the problem statement may be the, the, the issue of how we define that problem. And I, But then you can't, you can't start students that way because they'll get frustrated and like, well, I want the answer because they're still on the very early side of like everything's black and white, where I think we appreciate the areas of gray, even though we still like black and white answers. Somehow we need to celebrate the problem. Right? Like we, we have the same problem when we work with graduate students. Are you willing to spend the time that it takes to really define that question, that meaningful question, that consequential question, the specificity in that question, rather than just rush through it and get to like, here's my methods and here's my data collection, you know? And it's the same, it's the same problem. We want to rush through that beginning part. I want to return to Jeff's comment about the book range and why wicked problems probably require 
people with a range of skills or a group, right? So I think the reason why wicked problems are not amenable to be solved by a single person is no one person has a range of knowledge, skills, and abilities to see all the angles, know all the potential solutions, and knows all the evidence of the different approaches that could be taken. So that kind of leads into Adam's comment, which is like, are we giving our students things that are too simple and too, you know, pat and easy, and there's an answer they can go look up in a book versus really pushing them in some of these skills and maybe in some later courses or even leaving things with ambiguity and not grading the answer they come up with so much as the process they used. Do we do that enough to say, you know, process matters because in real life, there aren't solutions for everything. And so under having a really solid process to address problems that you encounter is really the key because you're not always going to have a pat answer available to you. So at the very least, understand the process. And that's what I'm going to grade you on. Well, I think that leads us to a, probably a, another podcast discussion about tolerance of ambiguity. And uh, I have a colleague down at Monash, an anatomist uh, called Michelle Lazarus, who that's really the area that she works in. I I just love that. I I challenge myself all the time. Am I, how, how much can I embrace this grayness and how much can I display that to, you know, novice learners so that they, um, that they have a little bit of resilience against our natural brain, which who wants to feel uncomfortable except for Jeff, who wants to feel uncomfortable, (laughs) um, being able to show, model that, teaching them that the re one of the reasons diverse teams make better decisions is because they have to slow down to accommodate all the different ways of approaching it. And yet that team space you have people that say I really just like to work with people that are like me it's a lot faster I know these people are going to do it exactly the way I'm going to do it and I'm like but that won't solve the wicked problem it'll solve the easy problem pretty quickly likely but the wicked problems you you do need that those people that are coming at it from a different perspective and you need to be able to explain the way you think to people who don't think like you and more likely to get to that stronger solution. I think along those lines is the fear of failure that, you know, we like answers and we're not willing to take a risk to be wrong. I mean, yeah, patient lives are in hand. It's one thing, but if it's something that's maybe less critical, then we can fail. It'll be okay. It's a really good solution. We tweak it next time. And also the willingness to listen to other people's people and say, you know, the and statement, to build on ideas versus the, but it's not going to work. So how many times are we in groups and, oh, here's my idea. No, that's not going to work because my perspective is better. So I think that's a willingness to actually be vulnerable to other people's ideas and come to a better solution, which is, I think, hard for lots of people to do because our egos say, well, I know something. And if you don't take my idea, then that hurts my ego and I'm wrong. Yeah. Well, I think these are all the skills that are needed to engage in a critical thinking process is to be open to new ideas, different solutions, and different ways of thinking. I think we've covered a lot today. I do want to come back to Tina's idea of maybe living with ambiguity because we live with it all the time. And how do we maximize that and, and, and use it to our advantage when we're teaching? I think that would be terrific. So with that, I want to thank you, Adam, for being here today. Thank you.
really appreciate it. And talking through this article, we hope everyone will read it. It's available in AJPE. So, and consider how they might include more critical thinking tasks within their courses, regardless of what discipline they're in. So with that, goodbye, everybody. We'll see you in a month. Bye. Later, Tater. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to Pharmacy Fika, a podcast where we enjoy coffee and conversations. If you liked this episode, please pass it along to a colleague and be sure to rate us. You can share your reactions on Twitter at Pharmacy Fika, but please be kind. This is a safe space. Got a question or want to suggest a topic for a future episode? Leave us a voice message at speakpipe.com slash pharmacy Bye for now. Namaste. Das Vidanya. Au revoir.